it's September, so you know what that means. Ghosts and ghouls! On this spooktacular episode of Life, the Universe, and Everything Else, we're talking about famous hauntings. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else explores the intersection of science and society. If you have questions or comments about the show, or you'd like to suggest a topic, you can find us on Twitter or Facebook, or send us an email at l-u-e-e-podcast at winnipegskeptics.com. Show notes and references can be found at l-u-e-e-podcast.com. My name is Jem Newman, and with me today I have Lauren Bailey. Hello. Ashlyn Noble. Hello. And Laura Creek Newman. Hi there. We have talked about ghosts and ghouls on L-U-E-E before, but it's been quite a while. <laughs> it's longer than I thought. I looked it up, and apparently I swapped some ghost stories on the show with Ian, Greg, and Mark way back in 2013. <laughs> so, wow. Um, I won't rehash those here, but suffice it to say, I have, in the past, have had some strange experiences myself, but considering them carefully, I don't think that ghosts are the best explanation. But I'm sure our listeners would be interested to know if any of my co-hosts have had any spooky stories happen to them that they wanted to share. I don't think I've even ever had an experience that if I was a ghost believer, I would have attributed to ghosts. Like, nothing even interestingly sideways paranormal has ever happened to me. I, yeah, I I don't think I have anything like that either. I have led a very boring life, except when <laughs> I am high. And even then, it wasn't ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I worked in theater for a while, and one of the things I was considering talking about on this show was the the allegedly haunted Pantages Playhouse. Uh, but but as I was preparing that segment, it uh, it turned into more more about Pantages the man uh, and less about um, about the playhouse itself because often like you'll hear these stories repeated over and over again in theater. you know, people saw this and that. I had some spooky experiences, weird things that I saw out of the corner of my eye when I worked in theater, but you know, that kind of thing happens. Uh, I've had things disappear on me. Um, I won't rehash all those stories here as, as I said, but lots of people have these stories. Lots of people have had these things happen to them and they think that the cause is ghosts. You know, when I was a kid, my dad was convinced that we had a ghost in our house because uh, the faucet in the bathroom kept like turning on a little bit. <laughs> I think that's just the fact that he had kids and was a bad handyman. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, when people come to you with a chilling tale of lights flickering inexplicably or a faucet turning on seemingly by itself or a creaky noise or chairs not being arranged exactly the way they remember them, why is it that we don't jump to ghosts as the best explanation? Well, you two have children, so nothing is proper in your house. <laughs> oh, that is true. We were just oh discussing that earlier. <laughs> so much anxiety about the clutter right now. We have a cat and are notoriously slobby, so... <laughs> who, would know, who would know how the chairs were supposed to be arranged to begin with? <laughs> chairs are arranged? <laughs> well we've often said like we need to get another cat if ours ever goes because otherwise what will explain the strange noises <laughs> <laughs> some sense of security <laughs> good thing this one is immortal so often these accounts that we hear are second or third hand distorted or embellished in the telling as interesting stories so often are and uh, from time to time, there's an understandable financial incentive to exaggerate the tale, as uh, I think uh, we'll get into a little bit later. But ultimately, when people claim that the best explanation is ghosts, it's, it's typically an argument from ignorance. When you get right down to it, it goes something like this. I don't have an explanation for this thing. Therefore, I do have an explanation, and that explanation is ghosts. Uh, Somehow, ghosts becomes the the default explanation that people fall back on when no other explanation is immediately apparent. And the thing is, there 
are often better explanations at hand if you look into any individual noise or flickering light or what have you. But ultimately, what strikes me most about ghosts as an explanation is the utter improbability of it all, the, the implausibility of that explanation. We don't know everything there is to know about the brain, far from it. But we learn more and more every day, and everything we do learn is consistent with the hypothesis that consciousness, being a person, like the, the feeling of self that we all have, is the product of the brain. The idea of Cartesian dualism, the idea that the self is located in some immaterial soul that controls our body like a puppet but is somehow separate from it, is a superfluous hypothesis, and one for which there is no evidence. Add to that the open question of how something immaterial could interact with the material world, at least from time to time, or constantly, uh, you know, if, if our soul is piloting our bodies around like a mech. And I'm forced to conclude that the idea of the soul just isn't a workable hypothesis. It has no explanatory power. And without the idea of a soul, the idea of a ghost doesn't make a whole lot of sense. I mean, what would a soul even do, aside from persist after death and to mess with some wiring and maybe throw the occasional pot with Demi Moore? obviously the moral and ethical center of our body but what does that mean <laughs> like, <laughs> like is it involved in decision making in any way and and if so how yes it's the thing that makes you feel bad when you know you're making the wrong decision it's jiminy cricket <laughs> we, we've solved it folks there we go now you see the world is full of temptations temptations yep temptations they're the wrong things that seem right at the time. But uh, even though the right things may seem wrong sometimes, uh, sometimes the, the wrong things may be right at the wrong time, or uh, vice versa. <clears throat> Understand? Uh-uh. But I'm going to do right. boy, Pinoc. And I'm going to help... The obvious answer, to me, is that the soul... And the idea of the soul sells a lot of books. So we're going to talk about a few haunting and haunting-related topics tonight. We're going to start off with one of the more famous stories of hauntings that everybody's probably heard of. The Amityville Horror. Oh, mother of God, I'm coming apart! So many of our listeners are probably familiar with the 1979 film starring James Brolin and Margot Kidder, based on James Anson's book of the same name. Or perhaps they might be uh, more familiar these days with the 2005 remake, uh, which was an instant classic and everybody totally remembers happened. The book and both films purport to be based on a true story and are set at 112 Ocean Avenue, a home in suburban Amityville, New York. It's the kind of house they don't build anymore. A relic of a time when the world wasn't in such a hurry, when there was still time for a little charm and elegance. It has stood empty for a long while. And at the price, it is a bargain. For a growing young family, it is almost too good to be true. In 1974, and this much of the story is true, the Ocean Avenue home was the site of Ronald DeFeo Jr.'s murder of his entire family. He shot his parents and all four of his siblings dead in their beds. DeFeo was swiftly convicted, after which no one was left to inherit the home, which was put up for auction. The story of the Amityville Horror follows the Lutz family, who move into the home a year later, and are immediately set upon by all manner of spooks and specters. Early in the story, a priest is called in, a Catholic priest is called in to bless the house, and uh, he is confronted by uh, a supernatural darkness and a demonic voice that screams at him to get out. Uh, he flees the home, and later, uh, I think in the film, he has a crisis of faith, and uh, later in the story, he has boils on his hands uh, that resemble the stigmata. 
through the course of their experiences in the home uh, over the, I think uh, it was about a month that they were in there. They moved in in December and they were, they were gone mid-January. Over the course of the time they spent in the house, the Lutzes witnessed um, demonic voices. I believe the husband claimed that he saw his wife transformed into an old woman. Uh, they saw glowing... The horror. Yeah. <laughs> There's no safe joke I could make at this point in the in the episode. <laughs> the the children witnessed glowing red eyes in the windows. Uh, apparently, uh, at one point they found footprints in the snow that were more akin to like cloven hoof prints. So presumably the devil himself was involved. Um, and uh, or there was a deer nearby. Yeah, right. or there was a deer nearby. Yeah, doors would uh, would slam shut or fly open of their own volition, and there was uh, as as the story reached its climax, they were blasted right off of their hinges. The story culminates with what the book describes as a greenish black slime that chases the Lutzes up the stairs as they flee their home, and police arrive, and you know they never set foot in it again. Uh, though it was left out of the 1979 film, I, I believe it was referenced in the 2005 film, but the book uh, apparently posits that the hauntings uh, were due perhaps to vengeful spirits of the original inhabitants of the area. Uh, this is the, the ancient Indian burial ground trope, or the settlers who drove the indigenous inhabitants out, uh, who were apparently themselves devil worshippers. Maybe I missed it, but like this house wasn't known to be haunted or weird in any way before they bought it? So it was known to have been the site of uh, grisly murders um, oh, okay. just before. So, so right. there was uh, the DeFeo murder, uh, and then they bought it. And so the, the story kind of posits that perhaps the DeFeo murder itself was also sparked by demonic possession. But that's kind of, uh, that's just table setting for the, for the story of the Lutzes, who are the, the main figures in the Amityville horror. As the story drew more attention, several psychical researchers, some skeptical, most less than skeptical, uh, were brought in uh, or volunteered uh, to investigate these claims. Um, a lot of them just showed up in the hopes of raising their profiles. Uh, you know, the, Psychic ambulance chasers. Yeah, basically. And, and that brings us to Ed and Lorraine Warren, who have appeared as characters in uh, a heavily fictionalized context in more than a dozen films in both the Amityville horror series and the Conjuring series. Lauren, did you want to chat about the Warrens a little bit? Sure. I'll uh, actually double that. There's 24 films that they feature in with wow. the Amityville series and the Conjuring series. <laughs> That's Yeah, and they're impressive. also like like there there are several actors who play them and they were they're also interviewed in some nonfiction films. Yeah. Psychic ambulance chasers is such a great uh, great term for the Warrens. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although the movies always portrayed them as, like, hard-nosed, skeptical investigators. Yeah, just like yeah. ambulance chasers are great lawyers. Yeah. <laughs> it was Ed Warren and Lorraine Warren, as Jem said, and they called themselves American Paranormal Investigators, and they were self-taught. Always excellent. Oh, I assumed they had, a you know, a, a doctorate-level education from an accredited university. Yeah, the Scooby-Doo University of <laughs> New England. <laughs> Well, Ed was a self-professed demonologist, Ooh. and Lorraine, Lorraine professed to be clairvoyant and a light trans medium. So, you know, they had it all covered. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. In 1952, they founded the New England Society for Psychic Research and started their psychic ambulance chasing. This is still the oldest ghost hunting group in New England. And they wrote a whole bunch of books, and the movies about them, the Conjuring series, I find it highly entertaining. But there's been a lot of skeptic investigations into the Warrens, including Stephen Novella of the podcast I will not name, and he de described it as Blarney. <laughs> but other investigators have concluded that the Warrens' investigations into their better-known hauntings like Amity Deville did not happen and were invented. So, Ed and Lorraine, full of bunk. There is an occult museum that was run by them. Uh, Ed died in, I think, 2006, and Lorraine died last year, 2019. Yeah, more recently. Yep. And their occult museum is still running, and is still it was put on the back of their house that they had in New England, and it's still open, and you can tour through all of their memorabilia from their investigations for $13 a head, so feel Not free. Annabelle anymore, though, eh? 
No, no, Annabelle's still there. <laughs> but I thought she'd escaped. Would you like to hear the funny story or should I wait for later? I'd love to hear it. So August 14, the doll from the Annabelle and Conjuring film franchises, she was trending on Twitter. And if you've seen the Annabelle or the Conjuring or whatever, it, it looks like a spooky porcelain doll. But the real doll was a Raggedy Ann doll, which they yeah, couldn't yeah. use for, for any sort of... Um, because of copyright. Yes, copyright purposes. Yeah. <laughs> I love. Oh, we had to make it spooky because of copyright law. Copyright yeah. law is the ultimate spook. <laughs> yeah. Lawyers are scary. <laughs> so the Annabelle doll does reside at the Warren Museum. But on August 14, there was rumors online saying that she had been, uh, had been stolen or had escaped from the museum. The real reason was there's a rumor that began after uh, the British actress Annabelle Wallace. There was an interview with The Hollywood Reporter, and she was talking about starring in The Mummy with Tom Cruise and getting him to run on camera. And when it was translated into Chinese, the story got changed to Annabelle Escaped. So Annabelle, the actor, running, got changed to Annabelle Escaped. And Annabelle Wallace did play Maya or Mia in the original Annabelle movie. Oh. <laughs> so the actor named Annabelle played a character in the movie about the doll Annabelle. And she also talked about that movie in this interview. So the tr Chinese translation said Annabelle escapes. Everybody got scared because it's 2020. And <laughs> the doll is currently residing in the Warren Museum in its locked glass case, and it's not able to haunt anybody right now. Sounds like Annabelle propaganda. Are you sure it can't haunt anybody right now? <laughs> Apparently it's locked in a spook-proof case or something. Oh, yes, yes. <laughs> Lorraine made a special case for it that it was unable to escape or send any negative energies out of. Maybe it's like lead-lined glass or whatever. <laughs> but there's no truth to the rumors. She's still locked up. She's not going to hurt anybody. Not that she was going to anyway. Yeah, I assume they, they worked with Bill Murray on that one and Dan Aykroyd. This is where we store all the vapors and entities and slimers that we trap. Very simple, really. A loaded trap here. Open. Unlock the system. Insert the trap. Release. Close. Lock the system. Set your entry grid. Neutronize your field. And the light is green. Trap is clean. Ghost is incarcerated here in our custom-made storage facility. So, getting back to the uh, the Amityville case itself, skeptical investigators have debunked basically every interesting part of the story. <laughs> so, researcher Rick Moran was adamant that the claims of indigenous spirits and devil-worshipping settlers were bogus. He spoke to a bunch of historians, and I'll quote him here. Experts told me that the tribe mentioned was not from the Amityville area at all. Actually, they had inhabited the eastern tip of Long Island, 70 miles away, and that the settlers mentioned were never local residents either. Anson's, that, that's the author of the book, Anson's tactic was clear. When strapped for good material for a book, padded out with quasi-factoids. Moran also interviewed the priest who was brought in to bless the house, who you'll recall the film uh, and book portrays as being chased off by a demonic presence and plagued by boils. According to Moran, quote, he said he never saw anything in the house. Skeptical investigator Joe Nickel visited the home on Ocean Avenue himself, and he pointed out that the idea that the doors were blasted off their hinges was unlikely, since the woodwork was undamaged and all of the original knobs and hinges were still present. He also dove into local records, and though the book and film show police arriving at the scene, according to Nickel, quote, during the 28-day siege that drove them from their house, they never once called the police. As for the cloven hoof prints in the snow, Nickel even went so far as to pull weather records from the area, uh, which he claims show that there had been no snowfall in Amityville or the surrounding area in the preceding days for the devil to leave footprints in. <laughs> but if that doesn't put a nail in the Amityville coffin, this is sure to do the trick. Remember the story of the horrific sextuple murder that happened in the house? As I said, that part did really happen. William Weber, the lawyer for Ronald DeFeo Jr., initially mounted an insanity defense, but the jury didn't buy it and sentenced DeFeo to uh, six consecutive sentences of 25 to life. He's still in jail today. So it appears that Weber contacted the Lutzes shortly after his client was convicted. Figuring that they could get his client a new trial and maybe sell a few books, 
they cooked up the whole story together. In a 1979 issue of People magazine, Weber admitted to fabricating the whole thing. He wrote, quote, I know this book is a hoax. We created this horror story over many bottles of wine. Very cool and ethical thing for a lawyer to do, by the way. <laughs> the home at 112 Ocean Avenue is still there, and since the Lutzes left in 1976, no one has reported any strange happenings. According to James Cromarty, who bought the house the next year and lived there for a decade, nothing weird ever happened, except for people coming by because of the book and the movie. So that's the Amityville Horror. Truly horrifying. Well, we don't want to, I mean, and you did say so, but you know, the actions of Butch DeFeo were, sorry, Ronald Jr. He goes, he went by Butch. He did go by Butch, yeah. Yeah. They're horrific in themselves. So that's the real horror. So I'm wondering yeah. about any sort, I know it was cooked up by the lawyer, but any sort of psychological, like, it can't the, be bad enough that a person can do that. And then people run with that? That makes me wonder about that. Am I making sense? Yeah, I think I, I see where you're getting. Uh, I, I think I see what you're getting at. It is kind of, while the story of the Amityville horror, the, the possessions and demonic happenings are all uh, completely fictitious, the actual murders that did happen are horrifying. And it's people, I think one of the reasons that people want to reach for a supernatural explanation is that we have trouble understanding how something so bad could happen. And it's made worse because there's no known motive for doing it. We, do, we truly don't understand what happened. It is difficult to understand why a person would just shoot every member of their family dead in their bed. And his story for why he did it or what happened that day has changed so many times that every investigator has basically thrown up their hands and said, there's no way we can ever know what happened, like why he did it, because we can't trust anything he says. Uh, he did initially paint the story after he murdered his family. He ran to a local bar and claimed to have just gone into the house and found his family dead and said that it was a mob hit, which was not totally implausible uh, because uh, the family actually had close ties to the Genovese mob family. But it uh, turns out that the hitman he claimed did it had a fairly solid alibi. And it was very soon clear that he was the one who had uh, committed the murders. He wasn't very good about hiding it. No. <laughs> That is horrifying. And people, sometimes people don't want to believe that a human being is capable of doing something so horrible. Well, especially someone doing that to their family. Yeah. And there's no, there's no mitigating, not, not that there could be any mitigating circumstances, but there's no, there's no explanation, no, um, not exculpation, but no explanation at all available for, for why it happened. So it's understandable that people would grasp for something supernatural, but... There's no evidence that it was. No. The whole story, the fact that they cooked it up, like these ancient spirits or something like that, I get it was to mount that, oh, that's what, you know, got Butch DeFeo to, to do this. But it actually would have been a better story if it was the spirits of the people killed there. That's that, like, if you're going to make up a ghost story, that would have been a better story because it doesn't feel so cobbled together. It does get kind of victim blamey, though. Because you don't want to blame the the real people who were actually murdered for doing a bunch of fake stuff to terrorize other people. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, yeah, I I, I wouldn't. But do you think that people do though? I mean, I think that people are generally I don't know. I I don't follow ghost circles or anything, but I get the sense that enough people see ghosts as tormented souls and so have some sympathy for them. Especially if you make the distinction between a tormented soul. And a demon. People don't have sympathy for demons. And that's like for these disembodied sort of ancient spirits that we don't really know about. It gets more into demon territory. But if you go with the, the ghost who actually had something terrible happen to them in life, people get scared by the stuff that's happening. But I don't know that people really blame the ghost. Like they say, oh, yeah, you were this was awful for you. I understand. We need to set you free. And that's how the story goes, because this is the same story. They're, that's the problem. All these things, the same story told over and over. I'm sorry, did I just ruin the episode? 
<laughs> no, I just wanted to say I think some demons are fairly sympathetic. I mean, anybody who's watched The Good Place will agree. <laughs> oh, man. I can't believe you figured it out. <laughs> oh, God. You, you ruined everything, you know that? <laughs> Best heel turn in uh, recent memory, I think. Oh, I, I love that. I love that show. Getting back to what Laura was saying, the known spirits are one thing, but the fact that they could pass them off as an other, blaming it on wronged indigenous ancestors, the othering of people, yeah. Um, you'll see that in Poltergeist as well. It's an easy way to make people scared of things they don't understand. So they would have had sympathy with the DeFeo ghosts, but they can be scared and then um, be able to get out of this real estate deal that they really couldn't afford to pay for the house by saying <laughs> there's scary people based on our, our ideas of colonization that are still terrorizing the house. Yeah, that's another thing that I didn't get into in my brief summary of the segment. A lot of people have posited that the true motivation Obviously, there's a lot of financial incentive to to cook up the story and get the rights and sell these books and like that. But in addition, uh, a lot of people have uh, have speculated that given the Lutz's financial situation, they were actually unable to afford the payments on the house, <laughs> and so they wanted to they wanted some excuse to back out of the deal. They did know at the time that they bought it that these murders had occurred there, but many have suggested that this provided an easy way for them to kind of wash their hands of the deal uh, without being tied to the house that they couldn't afford. So next, let's move on to something a little more recent. Laura is going to tell us all about the Coventry University ghost. Has anyone heard of this one before? No, I'm excited. New and okay. exciting ghosts. All right, so this was a new ghost story or, or sighting or whatever you want to call it for myself as well. Uh, but I did find it quite interesting, and I hope you will as well. Coventry University in England is an unassuming university founded in the mid-1800s in Coventry, as you would expect. And it also has some campuses across England. Though a mostly modern campus, the main campus, it is adjacent to the Coventry Cathedral, the first iteration of which was built in the year 1034. It would be very convenient for a cathedral to have a ghost story, <coughs> patron saint. <coughs> but this is actually just the mise-en-scene for my actual tale. Nearby to all of this exists a cellar dating to the 14th century, a cellar purportedly haunted by ghosts. <laughs> Cellar visitors would routinely report a distinct sense of discomfort or anxiety, extreme unease, apparitions, objects moving of their own accord, and such within the cellar. Now this, of course, became somewhat of a tourist draw, and many visitors have come from far away, and many of them have fled the cellar looking pale and shaken, hyperventilating, cold sweats. This includes believers and skeptics alike. So what could this be? A long-forgotten prisoner or servant out for revenge? The soul of a young lover who died of a broken heart? A portal to the underworld? Alas, the answer is far less occult, but far more interesting. The answer is infrasound. Ah, one of those. So you've heard of this before. I have. Yes. Excellent. I love these ones. <laughs> so this is something that I wasn't as familiar with. It's very interesting, though. So for anyone who isn't familiar with this, there are, just like human beings can see in a certain range of the light spectrum, we can hear in certain ranges of sound waves as well. But there are ultrasounds, like in the ultrasound imaging technology, and there's also infrasound. So infrasound is below the range of human hearing. So we've known that infrasound has existed for some time, but it wasn't always connected with any sort of happening here. This connection really started to pick up or was really figured out in the late 1990s when um, an engineer at the same university was working 
working in his workshop and he was cleaning his fencing foils because he's an avid fencer and he had put his fencing foil down and had strapped it to a, um, a workbench so that it was there solidly it couldn't roll around or anything and he noticed that the blades started to vibrate but there was no movement there was nothing in the room and he also started to feel uneasy he felt that sense of anxiety he also thought that he saw a gray face over his shoulder and when he turned it disappeared so he is of this uh, skeptical mindset, but he was shaken. But of course, he kept his engineer hat on there. And he started to move this workbench with the, the fencing foil on it around the room. And he noted that as he entered the center of the room, the blade vibrated at most. But as he went to the edges of the room, the blade stopped vibrating. Being an engineer at a university, he had access to a lot of very fancy sound detection equipment and so he brought some of that into the workshop and he realized that with careful sustained observations there were infrasound waves at in the range of about 18 to 19 hertz which is just below the level of human hearing oh my god you guys that buzz on the podcast it's infrasound <laughs> <laughs> we've been trying to get rid of it for so long and we're actually just haunted <laughs> it explains why we're hemorrhaging listeners. <laughs> <laughs> so what he realized there is that there was a standing wave, which means that uh, because of the shape of the room and the type of walls and whatnot, that the sound waves were bouncing off each other and creating the largest half of the wave in that center of the room. The reason that the foil, the, the fencing foil was vibrating is because all sorts of objects, human beings and human body parts included, have resonance frequencies. I'm not going to get into whatever that terrible movie was we yeah. were watching. I couldn't help but think of that when I read this. But it does mean that it, it will vibrate at certain frequencies. And so what had happened in that room is that with the infrasound, it was causing the foil to vibrate. So how does this relate to human feelings? Well, looking at some data from uh, NASA... Uh, among other things, there have been observations that different body parts will react to different uh, sound waves. So one of the things that was really interesting was that it was noted that uh, human eyes will have a, a resonance uh, frequency in that infrasound range around the, the 12 to 27 hertz mark. And so because of this, if there's a strong enough infrasound wave, it can cause vibrations in the eyes, which could very easily cause blurred vision or mistaking an object for another or something like that. So that's actually really interesting, I thought, uh, to have all those visual oddities happening. Another thing that can happen is that at that range, it can cause hyperventilation. And so that can affect the balance of oxygen and carbon dioxide levels, which in itself can then trigger the sympathetic nervous system and trigger fear and anxiety. So it's sort of a chain reaction that can happen for people. So then the same person who figured this out, he took that testing equipment, he went down to the cellar, and sure enough, the infrasound ranges in that same 19, 18 hertz range, we're in that cellar there. So it's a small space. It has thick walls. Of course, it's in the ground, right? And so it's very likely that that standing wave of an infrasound range could be happening there. And so that's the most likely thing that could be happening. And it's very easy to show that these types of things are happening. So the cellar is not haunted. There's just a source of noise that we can't hear, but can physiologically affect us. In some cases, they even call this frequency the fear frequency because it's common to elicit some of these emotions. I remember watching a, I don't know, like an Unsolved Mysteries or something that turned out to, well, probably not because this was solved. It turned <laughs> out to be a malfunctioning air conditioner unit in somebody's basement that was like vibrating a piece of wood or something at this frequency. And that's why this castle was haunted or whatever. I've always thought infrasound is so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Like it all makes perfect sense. I just wasn't aware of that really. And, and the interesting part, the way that it can induce things like hyperventilation and some of those types of feelings there or, or just to vibrate the eyes 
so that they would cause um, apparitions and that. That's that's pretty cool. But the brown note is still fiction. The brown note is still fiction. <laughs> it does sound very unsettling to experience. Yes, yes. And even like this, the engineer who figured it out and was doing the testing, he was very clear that he felt all of the same feelings that everyone else did. He just didn't believe that it was ghosts. <laughs> and so he cool. kept testing. Good for him. Yeah. Up next, the novel coronavirus is wreaking havoc at every level of society and exposing heretofore hidden social problems. But is it also haunted? Ashlyn? <laughs> so your question is, is the coronavirus itself haunted? I don't know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> so since March, a lot of people around the world have spent way more time inside their houses than usual. And consequently... There have been a lot more reportings of hauntings. So you know how when you spend time in somewhere that you're not used to, you notice a lot more sounds? I think that that is probably behind a lot of these uptick in hauntings. Uh, I found a few articles. Apparently, paranormal researchers around the world have received a lot more calls than usual. There was uh, one guy who was interviewed extensively, Mr. Tenney, a paranormal researcher and former host of TV's Ghost Stalkers, uh, says that he used to receive two to five calls a month from people convinced their homes are haunted. Since the stay-at-home order started, he gets five to ten calls a week. Huh. So it's a pretty significant uptick. But how do you socially distance from a ghost? Oh, there were lots of socially distanced jokes in these articles. <laughs> can't distance from something that won't leave your house, etc. Uh, so Mr. Tenney uh, admits that most of the things that people are noticing right now are probably not ghosts. He even has specific advice for people. He tells people to take a lot of notes, journal about it, keep track of when everything happens, because, he says, things typically tend to be like you're not usually home at 2.30 in the afternoon, but at 2.30 every afternoon, the UPS truck goes by uh, and rattles the window. And you've never noticed the rattling window before because you're never home at 2.30 when the giant mm -hmm. truck goes by. You remember our old house? Like, oh, yeah. it, like every time a truck went by, the entire house would shake. Your house, <laughs> that house was smaller than a truck. Yeah, it was. it was it was smaller than a truck and it had no foundation. So it, it lost the fight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, he tells people to take a lot of notes, figure out what natural solutions there might be. However, he still says like 10 to 20 percent are something else is happening. Yeah. As I discussed at the top of the show. If you can't find any other explanation, then it's ghosts. Right, yeah. You stop looking once you've thought about all of the obvious things it could be, and then obviously it's ghosts. Yeah. And again, other explanations, you're probably not used to being in your home when, like, the sun comes out and your house starts warming up, and so all of those creaks and things moving are new and unusual. Yep. Other theories that have been put forward by these various articles that I read, maybe the ghosts are also bored. <laughs> They want you out of their space. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Like, eight hours a day, this is supposed to be my house. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, they're supposed to have time to themselves. Uh, and now they've been cooped up for too long, so they are causing <laughs> havoc. But also posited by several people, including the ghost hunters, is that people are just in like a different emotional state lately. Yeah. They're keyed up. They're stressed. They're thinking a lot about mortality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And so things that might not bother them normally are going to have a bigger impact on their psyche. If you were to accept the premise that ghosts are real, it stands to reason that some tension would naturally result once their flesh and blood roommates start spending much, much more time at home together. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love the fact that every everybody else is really stressed out because they're they're cooped up alone, but all of the ghosts are stressed out because they're cooped up with people. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> There's too many people in my space. I don't get any alone time anymore. Am I a ghost? Yes. <laughs> A statistic that I found, apparently, according to a 2019 YouGov survey, 45% of U.S. adults believe in ghosts. 
which is a lot. That is a lot. I feel like a lot of people believe in them casually, though. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't think a lot of them are really going to call the ghost hunters or whatever. I don't think a lot of them are just kind of like, ah, oh, yeah, you know, but they're not, they're not dead serious on it. Right. I've met a surprising number of people who believe casually in a lot of stuff like that. Like a lot of people who are just like, oh yeah, I'm, you know, I go to see a psychic now and again. And, and it's, it's always that, that kind of casual belief is always kind of weird to me. Uh, I think it might just be my personality, but the idea that, that you could spend money on something and be so like unsure as to whether it makes any sense. It's just, it's a door open policy. That's all it is. Yeah. But even like thinking that there might be an afterlife that you can contact and not kind of diving into that and being like, oh my God, there's an afterlife we can contact. Yeah. That is also weird to me. Like if I even, even casually believed that that was a possibility, I feel like I would need to explore it very deeply. That's the antithesis of a casual belief. <laughs> well, no, I, and I understand, but I just, I don't, that's why I'm saying I don't understand having a casual belief in being able to talk to ghosts or whatever. <laughs> Lol, casuals. The same article had another stat. There was was an older statistic, but in 2009, the Pew Research Center found that 18% of Americans believe themselves to have seen or otherwise encountered a ghost. So a level up from just, I believe in ghosts. Oh, yeah. Well, like 25% of the podcast hosts have had ghost experiences. (laughs) Yeah. That's uh, as close as we could possibly get to that statistic, actually. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Mm-hmm. But I don't believe my lying eyes. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good policy. Another article I read is talked to somebody who was not just a ghost hunter. Talked to somebody who maybe has some experience thinking about this critically, which I appreciated. Uh, So his name is Kurt Gray. He's an associate professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And he studies how we perceive and treat the minds of other entities, including animals, machines, and the dead. Which is like a fascinating area of study, right? Yeah. And I like how that includes ghosts, possibly. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So he says, Times of great unease or malaise when there is an increased drive to find meaning in chaos can lend themselves to perceived hauntings. Not to mention that disease itself shares certain psychological parallels with a malevolent spirit creeping invisibly upon its unsuspecting victims. So all of these psychological things are converging in our minds to create more suggestion of hauntings. And I think that's probably pretty true. Mm -hmm. I read a few accounts of people who think they are haunted, uh, especially extra haunted now. There was one guy who moved into a house that had been the scene of a murder and Uh, He said he bought the house because he was a non-believer, and now he has been converted to believing in ghosts because of all of the creepy things that happened, like cold air, being in places he didn't expect cold air. (laughs) Sometimes there were towels on the floor that he did not leave there. (laughs) She seemed extremely explainable to me. (laughs) What? Just... If ghosts are so powerful, why do they do silly stuff like right. that? <laughs> Very messy roommates. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They're just passive aggressive. Get out of my space. Uh, so this guy's name who bought the murder house is Kurt Schleicher. Uh, and he says, the more I'm stuck in this house, the more there's a feeling. Infrasound. Check the air conditioner. <laughs> Especially if yeah. there's weird pockets of cold air. <laughs> exactly. In other news, in Indonesia, there has been a push to punish quarantine violators by locking them in abandoned homes that are believed to be haunted. What? <laughs> so uh, that just came up in my my search. I thought I would include that at the end of my segment. Um, that's it's kind that's of the opposite. Hilarious. Yeah, it's kind of the opposite of being stuck in your house and believing it's haunted. It's if you refuse to stay stuck in your house, we will make sure you're haunted. <laughs> See, should have stuck in the non-haunted house. (laughs) Right? (laughs) But uh, that's pretty messed up. Yeah, quarantine increases hauntings. The end. Cool. Well, as always, I would like to end this episode with something nice. Lauren, what's your something nice? (laughs) I have a couple. First of all, I'd like to congratulate our now ex-roommate Kaode on their new home that they have moved into as of September. That is nice for them. Congratulations, Kaode. And I had others, but I can't remember. Oh, 
I've done a lot of strategic planning and I have no meetings this weekend except for recording this podcast. So that's a big yay for me. That nice. is a yay. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Ashlyn? I debated whether to go with this, but you know what I've really been enjoying lately? Cannabis. <laughs> <laughs> so we decided to order a bunch of edibles and like we hadn't I had never tried cannabis before edibles became legal and it's like all the good parts of being kind of tipsy and the only quote unquote negative is that I drink a lot of water which I should be doing anyway <laughs> so uh, net win <laughs> right it's great and it's just like instead of my body feeling pain everywhere I just feel tingly it's the best thing ever <laughs> yeah, and it's uh, like I'm sure it's a lot healthier for you than smoking. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no smoking, just nice gummy no candies. No interest in that. <laughs> you also have another good thing. Remind me. You can see without any sort of corrective lenses. Oh yeah, I got my eyes lasered. Oh wow! <laughs> I'm looking so... at a picture of you right now with glasses on. So even though she hasn't worn glasses for ages. Like, she's had contacts for a long time. Yeah, this picture of you is from, like, literally 10 years ago. I think it's, like, yeah. early days of the skeptics. Oh, no. Is it, like, my Google yeah. account? Yeah. The yes. one that comes with... Oh, yeah, that's really old. But, yeah, um, it like, I wouldn't even describe any part of the process of laser eye correction as painful. It was vaguely uncomfortable for a few hours after I got home from the procedure, and since then it's just been great. Awesome. Everything about it is great, and the fact that it is mostly covered by the uh, benefits that I get through my spouse is also great. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Golden handcuffs are a great thing. Awesome. Sounds good. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Laura? <laughs> I have been enjoying the chocolate zucchini bundt cakes that I've been making. <laughs> I have also been enjoying those. <laughs> Can you slide me the recipe in Slack? Because we've got a giant zucchini that needs using. Yeah, I'll, uh, I actually have to tweak it because I, as always, have made some tweaks and it is mildly healthier, but better than the original. I feel like, did you make this cake last year also? I did. Yeah, I remember this cake. It was okay. good. It is better than last year. More cocoa. <laughs> Oh, yeah. But less sugar, because it didn't need all that sugar, especially with the cocoa. Anyway, uh, yeah, I've been really enjoying that, and I may go enjoy some more of that after this, even though mm-hmm. I just had a big giant ice cream. So that's been lovely, and I have been enjoying being able to ride my bike to work a little bit more lately. Mm-hmm. Uh, with our schedule, it allowed me to do that. I didn't have to do as many kid pickups and drop-offs, and that is really nice to be able to ride like that awesome. so that's been yeah that's been good i have been enjoying laura and i finally got around to watching news radio which has been oh, on no. our to watch list for a long time i love that show i love it i love it i love it i love it it, it, it is great it is it's great <laughs> and i'm not furious every time joe rogan is on the screen <laughs> You know, I think his character doesn't need to be there and doesn't really add much to the show, but whatever. Uh, yeah, it's it's great. It is like classic 90s sitcom, very solid writing, solid cast. You know, it's going to be very sad when we get to the end of season four, obviously, but we're still yeah. in season three, so yeah, we don't need to think lot. about that yet. I think that my favorite episode is in season four, though. Have you got has you gotten to the Kane episode? I think that's season four. We did do the Kane episode. I think that's actually season one. No, it's not season no. one. I season think it's season two. two. Yeah, season okay. two. Yeah. The Kane episode is pretty good. Yeah. That, it is my favorite. It's a, like, I really like classic multi-camera sitcoms with, you know, your live audience and it's really staged a lot more like a play. And there's yeah. a lot more focus on a lot of that physicality. Um, and, uh, like, but I don't know that news radio reaches the heights, uh, of Frasier for me. I'm a big Frasier head, uh, because, of, because known. of course I am. Yeah. <laughs> well, you you've seen my hairline. Yeah. <laughs> Dave Foley is so much better than Kelsey Grammer as a human being though. Uh, oh, as a human being. Yes. As a human being. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. I, I feel like Kelsey Grammer's comedic timing is, is yeah. Almost unmatched, though. The end of the final season of News Radio, they go completely off the rails. And 
it is amazing. Cool. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. I'm going to jump in here and just say, like, Stephen Root is amazing. Oh, my he is God. the yeah. best. He is just, his character, I could just watch him for 22 minutes. <laughs> yeah. Like, just just doing his <laughs> his Jimmy James thing. Uh, that like, That's it. That's all I need, really. <laughs> yeah. Dave and I will go on about the Super Karate Monkey Death Car over and over and over. Oh, we, we, haven't, we haven't got to that episode yet, yet but, uh, but I, I have watched that scene. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's just uh, the kind yeah. of humor that makes me so bored. Oh, really? Yeah, I just can't watch. I find it very unwatchable. It's just like, you're trying so hard and it's still not funny. <laughs> My wife is the Philistine, folks. <laughs> I think I think we have determined the generation divide here. Yeah. yeah, you folks are the ones going on about a 90s sitcom. I'm the cool one right now. <laughs> I will give an honorable mention to the website Buried Treasure at buried-treasure.org. That is a website run by John Walker uh, dedicated to reviewing indie games and particularly indie games that don't get a lot of coverage. We're not talking about the indie darlings, but like sort of small, you know, buried treasure, hidden indie gaming gems, he calls them. And, you know, there's, you know, several new indie games that he reviews every week. And it's just great to check out from time to time. I have discovered some of my favorite games there. A lot of the games are very cheap because they're indie games and uh, they're, they're phenomenal. So check out Buried Treasure as well. What are we talking about next month, Ashlyn? So yeah, next month we'll talk about prophecies. That'll be cool. Mm-hmm. I look forward to it. Thanks for joining me tonight, folks. Thank you, Jim. Thank you. Good night. <laughs> Have a good night. Good night. Good night. Good night. Life, the Universe, and Everything Else is produced by Jem Newman and Ashlyn Noble, with mix and tech production by Jem Newman. If you want to support the show, the best way to do that is with a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher, or by sharing an episode with a friend. Original music is produced by Ian James, and this episode was edited by Lauren Bailey. Life. Don't talk to me about life. September means ghosts and ghouls. September first guess... is spooky season. <laughs> I guess it has begun. <laughs> it comes earlier and earlier every year. <laughs> you know what? In twenty twenty, whatever, man. Whatever. I, I have no idea why we didn't save this for October. <laughs> We're so bad at planning this show. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Whatever brings us one molecule of serotonin. <laughs> Ice cream. Ice cream does that.